Hi, I'm Chrissy Kiratsu, and you are listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under Creative Commons license. We are on Spotify, iTunes, and Twitter. Hello. And welcome to the Researcher Spotlight episode of the session focusing on racism and racial discrimination. For the listeners who have missed the two recently released thematic discussions of the session with the African Caribbean Society of QUB Student Union and with Sydney Holt, now it's your chance to compensate for the time lost. Today, I'm talking with Laurie Gillespie, PhD student in American History at the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics at QUB. Thank you for being here with us today. First of all, I, would, I wouldn't like to talk on your behalf, so I would like to give you some time to tell us about yourself and about your research. Yeah, so my name is Laura Gillespie. I'm a PhD researcher here at Queen's uh, studying African-American history. Um, so I'm from Donegal originally, and um, I study the development of African-American politics during the Civil War era. Uh, particularly in the slave refugee or contraband camps um, that were set up across the South during the war. So a few weeks after the war, um, fugitive slaves sought refuge behind Union Army lines, um, claiming that they were being forced to work on Confederate fortifications. So the general there, Benjamin Butler, he confiscated them because they were the property of the Southern slaveholders, so they became contraband of war, even though they were people. Uh, And within a few weeks, over a thousand enslaved people had arrived at the camp seeking refuge, and um, enslaved people soon began to appear wherever the Union Army went in the South. Um, So they kind of forced the issue of emancipation on Abraham Lincoln and the federal government. Um, So my research focuses on particular in um, their experience within the camps and how this contributed to their political activism and their development in terms of politics. Um, Most of the scholarship to date argues that black people learned their politics during freedom and after emancipation. But I argue they were always politically active um, and engaged. They just had to find ways outside of the kind of official political arena to... um, contribute and engage before the war. Uh, They then built upon their experiences in the camps and this led to their political activism and involvement in official politics after after the war ended. So that's what my thesis focuses on. Sounds so interesting. And uh, I, if I may say, uh, you illuminate an aspect that uh, it's often neglected. Absolutely, for sure, yeah. 
if I if I could ask you, could you tell us some more details about the complexities and uh, maybe the the contradictions of this uh, of this issue? Yeah, absolutely. So. The terminology even was very controversial, calling them contraband of war meant that they were property, whereas when they reached the camps, they entered this kind of transitional status. It was almost like a self-imposed limbo between slavery and freedom. Um, so most people called them freed people or contrabands. And their lives in the camps, they kind of, you know, they engaged in labor for the union cause. That was one of the major kind of ways they fought for their freedom. Um They set up schools for the first time. They set up churches. You know, they were allowed to practice religion out in the open for a lot of them for the first time. Um, And they kind of tried to reconstitute their families and create lives kind of in freedom, even though they technically weren't free yet at this stage. Um, But they definitely started to see themselves as freed people. Um, And they, they wanted political rights. So especially, I would say, from halfway through the war, I can see a real... Um, kind of stepping up almost in political activism you know they had mass meetings on a regular basis and um, they were really pushing for citizenship citizenship and full rights full political rights you know they wanted to be involved in the political process so a lot of this had to do with um, their experiences during the camps. And also uh, I, I find your approach very interesting because uh, we usually think Uh, whenever we listen of uh, uh, refugees or contraband, more more specifically, we always tend to listen that people they are people with no agency, that they are exploited, and of course they are. I mean, they find themselves in so harsh conditions, and uh, I I can understand that there are certain limitations, but uh, how people make sense and organize their daily life I mean it can be so insightful yeah absolutely no there definitely was exploitation um as you just mentioned you know and conditions were like dire in most places you know they had major major health issues you know things like not enough food any 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 kind of issues that other refugee camps would face now and um, food shelter water um but at the same time for these people it was it was agency And it was getting to decide for themselves who their labor would benefit from, especially. And, you know, they were giving their all for the union war effort. Um, So, yeah, it is kind of it is kind of different. But did they have the option to um, walk away from this uh, from the army? Yes, they did. Um, Some of them, a very small amount, returned to the plantations that they worked on before. And sometimes if they found conditions just weren't kind of feasible for surviving and they did return to the plantation so they went looking for work in urban cities within the south but most of them passed through the camps even if they didn't stay in some way a lot of people you know by the end of the war um it was between 524,000 and 660,000 formerly enslaved people were within these camps It's just the fact that nobody knows if I if I tell people I work on contraband camps, nobody knows what I what I'm, I mean. Um, yes, because it's not a very well known term, contraband uh, camps. It's a, actually, to, to be honest, it's also the first time that I hear this term too. Yeah, so it'd be the same for most people. And if I say contraband camps, a lot of people think concentration camps. 
um, which obviously they weren't, you know, they did, they did have some kind of um, choice and control in the matter. Um, but yeah, for the fact that there were 4 million slaves in the South, you know, that is a massive, it's one eighth of the population passed through these camps in some way or they lived there for the entirety of the war. Um, so yeah, fairly major amount of people. Uh, sounds so fascinating and uh, yeah, we would like to read something of your research, you know, to have a more detailed uh, view over this uh, issue and also of your approach. Um, and now I would like to go ahead with the second question, that is uh, research may give you a hard time and I guess that your topic uh, is one of the hard ones and uh, the reward may be little. Uh, compared to all the effort that you make and all the hardship. Uh, so why did you choose that path? Um, so I only kind of started thinking about research in the last few years. Um, I was always interested in history, but I didn't think I would go down the path of kind of, you know, staying within academia. But by the end of my undergrad, um, I decided to do a master's. I did a master's in American history at Queen's and really, really liked it. Wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue a PhD. I had been kind of thinking about it and I took a year out and lived in Boston. I worked in a museum over there for a year. So it was interesting to get to see kind of public history, you know, what goes on there. But um, yeah, I decided that I think academia I'm more suited to. So yeah, I came back and started my PhD here at Queen's in 2017 and Research is very hard. I think I wasn't prepared for how tough it was going to be. And the fact that we're all working on these theses for like so long, you know, it's a long time to be looking at one project. And as you just said, like mine is quite a heavy topic at times, especially when I have to look at, you know, exploitation conditions, that kind of thing. Like it is, it's really hard. Um, But I just think the topic is so important. And especially, you know, there's been such a move kind of in the last 20 years or so to start looking at black history in particular, more kind of from the grounds up, you know, grassroots activism, that kind of thing. So, yeah, if I can make a small contribution, you know, I think it'll have been worth it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course. Uh, If I may ask you to explain a little bit more about public history. Yeah, so um, I was the history department intern um, and I did a lot of different things. So in terms of public history, you know, I was very much involved with engaging with the public. I was involved with a play that we put on. So we had members of the public coming in. I talked to them afterwards about the history of the topic and everything. It was to do with the revolution. And then... um, I gave tours, I acted as a tour guide uh, for a few months, but I found that people were just asking me where I was from. They weren't asking about the history a lot of the time, so they decided to kind of pull me back. Um, And then I was working on the editorial committee for one of the publications um, that the organisation had. So I was doing a lot of different things. I think public history, that is often the case, that you're involved with a lot of different projects. but I myself would consider public history to be slightly more public facing, you know, engaging with the public on a regular basis and trying to kind of get the history out there, you know, instead of academia where the, our articles and our publications might be slightly more tailored to, you know, our own kind of communities. Of course, I'm making all these uh, narratives and, you know, history with capital hate. Uh, 
more accessible or comprehensive to the wider public, to someone that uh, is not a historian. Exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, how did you decide? Why are, are you specifically interested in public history? And also the topic of your research offer, uh, is so uh, rich and so interesting. And I suppose that it offers you so much ground to, to, to for further initiatives, maybe public history initiatives. Yes. Yeah. No, I would be very much involved, like interested in staying involved, especially now, hopefully in a few years time when I have some kind of publications behind me and um, really getting the research out there and, you know, making it more accessible. Like, as you were saying, I do think it's a very rich topic. There's a lot to say here. Um, but it's making sure that people who aren't historians kind of can engage with this as well and especially um for the fact that my topic is so understudied and American history in particular you know there's this there's been this kind of dominant narrative for so long that yeah I would definitely be interested in trying to kind of interested in trying to kind of change that a little bit um and just yeah complicate the narrative and yeah get get the research out there it's it's very important to me why did you choose your research topic that is admittedly heavy. Yeah. So I um, I took Dr. Brian Kelly's um, Civil War and Reconstruction module when I was in my final year of undergrad at Queen's. And I've always been interested in American history, in particular the Civil War. But this module, I just found it so interesting. It was by far, you know, my favourite module that I did in my entire undergraduate um, course. And... Yeah, I was just really interested in it. I did an essay in my fr- in that semester on Lincoln's evolving stance on slavery and talked a tiny bit about the camps within that and how the enslaved people were kind of forcing this issue on the federal government. And then I decided to do my undergraduate dissertation on it. So my undergrad dissertation was just a general study of the camps. Um And then for my master's, I did a kind of prequel, shall we say. So I looked at slave political activism in the years leading up to the Civil War. So it was all about their information networks, how they were finding out about like um, elections, um, Lincoln in particular, why they thought that their um, kind of situation, why they thought the institution of slavery might be under attack and how that might then impact upon them. So that was my master's dissertation, which I really, really enjoyed. So then for the PhD, it's kind of an amalgamation of both of them. Um, My first chapter is very similar in ways to my master's thesis, given this kind of background, um, talking about the grapevine telegraph a lot. So do you know the song, I Heard It Through the Grapevine? It's Marvin, I think it's Marvin Gaye. Heard It Through the Grapevine is like, yeah, it's a pretty popular song. It's a it's a phrase that people would say, but it actually comes from these um kind of enslaved networks of information. So they would meet at grapevines in the road and swap information. Wow. So um, I don't know yeah. what to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um yeah, just little tidbits like that. I like to really kind of explore that more. Um and then the rest of my thesis covers you know, I, I have a whole chapter on labour because that was one of the major ways. They were so politically um, motivated, you know, the fact that they were able to remove their labour from the Confederate side and dedicate it to the union, you know, be able to practice that agency and decide who their labour would benefit was so important. And um, 
Yeah, conditions within the camps, education, religion. Yes. If I understand correctly, it was a step forward because previously they didn't even have this choice and it having the, the option to be able to you know, to, to decide over their labor and all the the background was a step forward and it was a result of their own struggles, right? Exactly, exactly. So before they had no choice in the matter. Uh, sometimes they might have been able to hire themselves out, but it was always kind of, they were under the jurisdiction of their master and they had to give the money back, you know, then to the master. Um, now, a lot of the time they did make a lot of money, you know, within the camps and, you know, they... Sometimes they were impressed into service. You know, they were forced to work. Um, but for the most part, it was the fact that they were getting to choose. You know, that was like one of the major, major kind of, um, a major step forward, as you said, for sure. Laura, I listened to the way that you describe your topic and your approach and your the focus of your research. And uh, a question comes to my mind. Um, it sounds very challenging to me to keep a balance between showing all these hardships, inequalities, exploitation, and at the same time, uh, highlight the the potential that these people have had, the, the results of their own struggle. So I guess that it must have been a little bit complicated. So if you could just say a little bit more about this, about this, you know, keeping the balance between the two. Because I'm also, I have also also engaged in a similar approach um, for my research, and it can be very complicated to keep the balance. Yeah, yeah, I find trying to have a balance between explaining that they were miserable a lot of the time, and that it was so challenging, and just surviving was kind of a massive feat. But at the same time, the fact that they were able to you know, it was, it was this great moment of hope for them. You know, they've been waiting for this for years. They had been having secret meetings, discussing how their lives and freedom, like how would they get there? And, you know, the Union Army entering the South, that's what gave them the opportunity. They saw them as allies. They joined up with them. But yeah, there was a lot of exploitation and it is, it is really tough trying to keep that balance. You know, I wrote a chapter Um, I think it was my third chapter and my supervisor said this is kind of too happy a story (laughs) because you know I was saying isn't this great they were able to go to school for the first time most of them they were able to practice their own religions they were able to marry their spouses which had never been legal under slavery they were able to reconstitute families but at the same time there was so much suffering that yeah it it is hard trying to kind of keep it There there was this message of hope but also it was it was a very tough time of yeah. course because so as a historian you have the responsibility of you know you you make a particular representation of uh, the people that have lived through all these uh, conditions and have uh, fought against all this so i i can get that it must be very challenging for you yes um why does your research matter so that has happened in the past we come here to the present so why does your research matter? Um, I think just as I mentioned earlier, you know, the fact that American history, it's very much been told from the white man's perspective is what I would kind of say. And um, there's been such a move, you know, the fact that it is, it's Black History Month at the minute. You know, there is this move to kind of bring to light these stories that nobody knew before, but they are so important to, you know, 
the foundations of America. And I think it's so important to understanding why America is the way it is. And, you know, seeing what happened a few weeks ago at the Capitol when there was, you know, the riots. Um, a lot of the time it's miseducation. And, yeah, it's the kind of selling of this one narrative that, you know, I, I think it's really important to try and um, complicate that and add, they bring these new stories to light. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura, has your own background and also the fact that uh, you're not uh, from this uh, community, neither do, do you have any relations, uh, has it affected your um, the, the way that you're perce perceived uh, as an expert in this topic? Yeah. yeah, for sure. I think it's myself all the time. You know, I'm just this little white girl from the northwest corner of Ireland, you know, um, who's interested in this really niche topic. And um, one time I went to the archives in DC and um, the archivist, he was a black man. And I said, and I was looking for this really kind of niche newspaper that isn't um, digitized or anything, you know, and he was like, why do you want that? And I explained my topic to him and he was like, how are you studying that? <laughs> And he was like absolutely baffled. I don't know. I'm just I'm just so interested in it myself. Um, and there are a few other researchers working on it, but not a massive amount. Um, so I know I'm not from you know like the black community, obviously. But if I can make any kind of contribution, I would hope that it would kind of help a little bit. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So how has your way of thinking or you know, that your understanding uh, the world or even your everyday life, uh, have they changed or have they been affected in any possible way uh, by your research so far? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that my, my thinking changes on a daily basis for my research, depending on what I'm reading. You know, I am, I'm far enough into it at the minute that I can think, okay, this is where I'm going. And then I'll read one book and I'm like, whoa. They just kind of blew my theory out of the water and you kind of have to go back to the drawing board. So, yeah, my thinking changes a lot. And then also, um, even just in terms of America and how it is with them, and I think I have a fairly detailed understanding of why, you know, um, I think just from being so immersed in material from such a crucial moment in American history, um, I would have a fairly good understanding of that. And then also the current social justice movement. Um that has really kind of motivated me to keep going and to get the research out there, even when it is really tough, um, because I do think it's so important. And then it's also kind of led me to look at myself more. And I've been reading a lot of kind of anti-racist work in my spare time um, and really just kind of trying to change my thinking in general. But it's definitely been impacted by my research. Mm -hmm. And I guess that uh, everything became so much relevant uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement. Because 2020 has been, uh, there have been massive protests and uh, so many. So I don't know if this has also affected you or the way that you deal with your research and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was finding it really tough last June um, when, you know, after, say, like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders, trying to then, you know, my, my social media, the news, everything was all about Black Lives Matter. Really, really, really incredibly sad um 
stories and it's like the fact that they, these events are still happening for me to then try and go and then read about that in the 1860s you know it, it was tough um I definitely had a week or two where I was like I don't know if I can do this anymore it was just feeling like an awful lot but I just kind of stepped away and I think the importance of my research again just really kind of keeps me driven and keeps me kind of on task and motivated to to finish it and to try and get it out there. Mm -hmm. I see and uh, what you have said leads me to the next question that it is uh, <laughs> is there a moment that has marked your research uh, so far for example in in a positive or in a negative way or in a strange way? Yeah yeah so um, I feel like yeah what I just said that's kind of been a negative um just a really a kind of hard set of circumstances to work through you know but at the same time again makes me makes me happy that I am working on this I think in terms of a positive moment I went on a research trip to America in the summer of 2018 so I spent two months between DC and Boston um and it was my first major trip I was kind of immersed in the archives and I think it was the first time that I was like like, wow, okay, I can do this. The research is there. Like, it just it made me really kind of feel like a bona fide researcher for the first time. <laughs> so um, that was good. And then in my spare time, um, I would travel around, you know, Civil War sites and um, museums. You know, DC is so full of museums. Um, so just kind of immersing myself in American um, culture and history as well. So that trip really kind of changed my thinking on a lot of things. And... Um, Yeah, it was great. I'd say it was kind of the moment that moved it all forward, you know. Mm -hmm. Being there, actually, and experiencing all this on on the side, yes. I see. Uh, do you have any research rituals? How is your daily life as a researcher? As an early career researcher? <laughs> so thankfully, ethically, um, obviously, most of the people, well, all of the um, people that I talk about are dead because it's been what 160 years but ethically it is tough um do you know even find my I find myself sometimes making trying to make sure that I'm using the correct language you know um being sensitive whenever I'm writing um in terms of research rituals well it all changed in the last year obviously with COVID I used to go to the office and I would spend kind of between 10 and 6 there every day But I moved home to Donegal in August. Um, I just was feeling really cramped in my two-bed apartment. And we had no access to the office at the time. And yeah, there were a few different reasons. So since I moved home, my research ritual has kind of changed. I've realized that I actually work really well from 8.30 in the morning until 12.30 kind of solidly. So I've started dedicating that to writing time or planning time. You know, that's kind of whenever I try to think about it the most. And then my afternoons will be spent on general readings and bits and pieces like that. Um, yeah, and then I, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, sometimes I just step away and do yoga. I take a bath, you know. I just try to kind of keep myself as zen as possible when working on such a heavy topic and living through a pandemic. 
Yes. Uh, also, it's interesting what you say because, you know, because uh, we work mostly in offices, there are many people who think that, uh, who, who, who wonder actually how the pandemic could possibly affect a researcher. Because as long as you do uh, your work in an office, you can do the same work in, at home as well. But it doesn't seem to be possible. No, I don't think so. And I was in a shared office with maybe five other people. And even losing that support network on a daily basis has been kind of major. You know, being able to turn to people, we had mixed mixed years. So there were first year PhD, no, second year PhDs, third years, fourth years. Um, and then some people who were just teaching or doing um, postdocs. And to be able to turn and talk to them, especially people who have been through it before, was so helpful, I found. Um, and then even just to kind of vent if you're having a tough day or you don't know what you're doing with the research or yeah, you're just feeling overwhelmed. Like I feel like losing that. Obviously, I still I still speak to them, you know, on WhatsApp or whatever. But um, it's just it's not the same, you know. So I feel like the kind of research culture is so important, and having these kind of shared spaces where you can speak to people who are in the same field as you. Like I think, yeah, massively important. Of course, also when you're doing research, I mean, you you engage in broader discussions anyway that are informed by history, by past, by how we currently perceive all these uh, events. So it makes sense that you need to discuss with your colleagues too, in proper settings, not online. How do you manage work and life balance? Uh, I'm pretty strict about only working during office hours. I used to kind of maybe work late sometimes or I'd work at the weekends. I don't do that anymore because I feel like rest and recovery are so important at the minute and just to try and keep myself in a stable enough state of mind to be able to keep going with the work um yeah I think it's just very important you know I work until I work maybe half eight to five each day and I try not to work at weekends unless you know I have I have something on or I have to prep for something um but yeah I try to kind of keep that work-life balance you know um as much as I can mm-hmm And uh, the final question, Mm -hmm. Uh, who has helped or inspired you? Um, So we were just talking about the kind of PhD cohort. I think they have been probably the biggest help to me throughout my entire kind of research career so far. Um, You know, being able to talk to people, going for a cup of coffee, having a glass of wine at seminars, you know, and being able to talk about things um that's been they've been kind of the most helpful uh to me over the last few years and then my supervisory team obviously um have been really helpful and encouraged me uh along the way so Dr Brian Kelly he's been my supervisor since I was an undergrad he supervised my undergrad master's and my PhD thesis and then Dr Nick Rabianski she's my second supervisor and um yeah they're both great and very kind of um supportive always so that's great um and then just the HAP staff in general you know all of the lecturers within history especially obviously I know them best because they're within my discipline um I think there's just a really nice kind of research community there and everybody kind of you know gets on is there for each other if you need anything um so that's been great and Yeah, my family obviously have been great, especially my friends and family in DC and Boston. You know, they gave me a place to stay on my research trips. 
Uh, I have cousins who live just outside DC and they have been so um, generous with <laughs> allowing me to stay with them uh, several times over the past few years. And yeah, I have a lot of friends in Boston from when I lived there. And again, they give me a couch, a blow-up bed, a glass of wine at the end of the day after archives. So um, they've, they've been great. And in terms of inspiration, um, there are several historians who in the last few years have published work in and around this topic and they just kind of motivate me to keep going every time I read their research, every time I look at anything to do with their publications because um, they've done such a great job so far. Also, they're all women, which I find very kind of inspirational and, um, you know, academia, academia can be tough for women. So to see them all succeeding and having these... Um, successful books and kind of publications that's been really inspirational for me of course also what i like particularly in our discussion and all these experiences and thoughts that you have shared so far is that uh it's, it's very usual to think that uh, a researcher may work uh, individually alone somewhere particularly when it comes to history that you deal with uh, events of the past and throughout our whole conversation there there i have the sense of collectivity that there are so many people involved in so many different ways supporting, inspiring, working with you, collaborating with you, which is, it, it gives a whole different perspective, you know, on uh, on research. Absolutely. I would not be where I am today. I don't know if I would still be in the program, you know, without all the people that have kind of been there along the way and who are still there. Um, and then even, you know, like my school friends, having a WhatsApp group where I can vent to them um, whenever, you know, I have any issues or getting to talk to people outside my discipline that is massively uh, helpful for me so yeah getting to talk to people about my, about my, about my research um is always is always really enjoyable for me but no it definitely it's a collective effort I feel <laughs> yeah definitely yeah um I suppose that our discussion is about to end soon okay so if you would like to share any more thoughts or a, a motto maybe for the end of the discussion? Yeah, um, this is a bit ridiculous, but I'm kind of notorious among my friends and family for saying, you do you. And it's just, I think it's great advice. <laughs> I literally bought the t-shirt. Um, it did, it started out as a bit of a joke with my friend Eleanor. Um, but I think in relation to the PhD, it's so um, appropriate. People can get so kind of, bogged down in things and I think especially there can be a lot of comparison or making comparisons between yourself and other researchers and I think just kind of staying in your own lane focusing on your own research and um, kind of trying to stay on your own path I think that's kind of essential in uh, making it within this field because you know academia is tough but you know you do you gotta stick to your own path (laughs) of course (laughs) Uh, Laura I would like to thank you so much for our discussion today it's been uh, amazing to have this discussion yes no thanks for having me yeah thank you yeah no it's been great thank you so much thanks for listening this is the last episode of the session focused on racism and racial discrimination we hope that the discussions have been as insightful for you as they have been for us 
Feel free to get in touch with KUB Voices on Twitter at KUB Voices to let us know of your thoughts or if you would like to join us in a thematic discussion around the current issue.